If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Known for her extraordinary catalogue of works, the late medieval writer Christine de Passan is remembered as an icon of the written word. In her new book, Charlotte Cooper Davies delves into the life and legacy of Christine, exploring how she was meticulously involved in the production of her works, was connected to renowned artists and royal patrons, and also later came to be seen as a feminist hero. Emily Briffitt spoke to Charlotte to find out more. Today we're going to be talking all about your new book, Christine de Pizan, Life, Work and Legacy. So my key question for you is, who was Christine de Pizan? That's an excellent question to start off with. Yes, to put it very simply, she was a writer in the Middle Ages, so writing late 14th and early 15th century. More specifically, she was a poet. She was a biographer and a political thinker. But as well as that, she was a feminist or a proto-feminist. And one of the reasons that that she's still of interest to modern audiences is that she engaged with kind of pro-feminine matters at a time where misogyny was kind of the dominant way of thinking, really. Um, That's what generally interests audiences. What I've always been interested in, though, is... uh, her entrepreneurship. So she was a a woman who produced her own manuscripts. Uh, She ran her own workshop. She worked very closely with the artists and artisans who worked on those manuscripts. And she promoted her works as well within the highest echelons of society. So the royal family were uh, one of her main patrons. And 
all of this she did as a she. She did all this as a woman. You know, this would have been extraordinary stuff for a man in the Middle Ages, but for a woman to have done it was even more extraordinary. Where exactly did she fit into medieval society? What did her start in life look like? Christine's father was a man called Tommaso da Pizzano, and he was a Venetian scholar who had studied at the University of Bologna. And when Christine was four years old, he was invited to the royal court in Paris, so the court of Charles V of France, to become the court astrologer. So Christine moved from her native Venice. So she's thought of as an Italian writer, but she never wrote in Italian. um, And, you know, she only lived there approximately the first four years of her life. So she moved at a very young age to Charles V's court in Paris, along with her family. Uh, And from there, she would have interacted with the highest echelons of society at court. Um, We don't know who exactly. We've got an idea of some of the people she would have met. Um, But she was certainly very firmly ingrained within that courtly and intellectual society as well through her father. So her father seems to have given her quite a scholarly upbringing. She seems to have been brought up around that. And in your book, you suggest that she had this love of learning. What else could we say inspired this? I think her father has a very big part to play in this. So Christine wrote... uh, a couple of autobiographical narratives where she talks about her upbringing and how she came to this love of learning. And she talks about how her father, um, in one of her books is uh, The Livre de la Mutation de Fortune. So that's the um, book of uh, the, the changeability of fortune, if you like. And she describes how her father was endowed with riches, meaning wisdom, um, and how she wasn't allowed to inherit those riches because society prevented her from doing so because she was born a woman. Um, but she says that despite the fact she was a woman, she she was able to grab some of the crumbs that fell from his table. So, you know, she was still endowed with some uh, abilities and some love of of scholarship and learning. In another of her narratives, she describes how her father encouraged her to learn despite the fact she was a girl. So although girls in the Middle Ages weren't formally educated, he still encouraged her and made sure that she was treated just like any of his sons would have been. So she got quite a lot of her learning from her father. However, there's a major second uh, source for her love of learning. And that's, well, it's sort of two things, really. It's it's on the one hand from her husband, and second, comes about as a consequence of her husband's death. So her husband, a man called Etienne de Castel, to whom she was married for, I believe, 11, around 11 years, um, sadly died very young. Um, and Christine was left widowed when she was only about 26 years old, and she had three children, probably all quite young to look after at home. Um, He was a royal secretary, and there's some evidence in Christine's manuscripts to suggest that she might have learnt a kind of chancellery script, so this is a way of writing, uh, from her husband, Etienne. When Etienne died, 
Christine then turned to learning kind of as a way of comfort to begin with. So she be- she tells us that she began reading some more simple things and then gradually uh, her interest broadened. So she started reading more historical stuff, um, more mythology, that sort of thing. And her writing followed. So she began writing very simple poetry. Well, she says quite humbly that she began writing very simple poetry and that from there her writings developed into more intellectual sorts of things. When was this? What sort of time? So Christine was born around 1364. We don't know exactly. She started writing around 1395. So she would have been just pushing 30. Her first major works weren't written until the turn of the 15th century. So around 1399, 1400. And um, from there, her career really peaked um, in the 1410. So around 1412 to 1415, she'd done most of her work by that stage. Um, And just to, to round it off, uh, we don't know when exactly she died but we believe it was sometime around 1431. I think this is quite an important contextual question, really. We're talking about this famous medieval writer, but actually what types of work did she produce and what did she actually write about? So her earliest works tended to be lyric sort of poetry. Um, tended to be on themes that were quite popular at the time. So there's some love poetry Um but even that is written from quite a personal point of view. So she she writes about her widowhood in a very moving sort of way. And, you know, that's fairly unique for, um, you know, I don't think there are any other poems um, about being a widow written by a woman in the Middle Ages. So, you know, there's this really personal strand to a lot of her poetry. Um, from there, we, we get some longer poems. So things like one of my favourites is the Epitre au Dieu d'Amour. So that's the Epistle of the God of Love, which is a letter that purports to be written by the God of Love, uh, telling the men of France that they need to treat women better. Um, so we get some pieces like that. Um, what else did she write? So she wrote a historical biography of Charles V, so her father's protector and her family's patron. Um, and actually, most of what we know about King Charles V comes to us from Christine. Another of her book, the Book of the Deeds of Arms and Chivalry, so Le Livre des Fées d'Armes et de Chevalerie, um, is a particular favourite of mine because it's a kind of handbook on medieval warfare. And the reason I like this so much is that so much of what we know about warfare in the 15th century, we know from this book. And you would never expect a book on war to have been written, and such a significant book on war, to have been written by a woman. Otherwise, she's very heavily inspired by mythology. So a lot of her poems are um, kind of take mythology as their basis. And I've mentioned already a couple, there's at least three autobiographical narratives as well. And two final genres I'll mention. So some devotional poetry. uh, So yes, uh, prayers to the Virgin Mary, that sort of thing. And finally, letters. Um, she was quite a prolific letter writer. So either in the Epistle of the God of Love, which I've mentioned is a, a kind of letter 
that's written in verse, but she she wrote a number of letters in prose as well, notably to other scholars and theologians of the time uh, that she went on to publish. So yes, yeah, sorry, that was a very long answer. There's at least 30 major works of hers. She wrote on a v- variety of subjects. That's absolutely amazing to have been able to write so many and so many different types of work. Can we learn about Christine's character and her emotions through her work at all? Can we find out more about her? Um, sadly, only a little bit. The one thing that comes across in Christine's works is that despite the fact that she was quite radical in terms of her defences of women, she was also fundamentally quite conservative. So this is, we might come on to talk about this in a moment, um, one of the criticisms that's levelled against her kind of pro-feminist writings is that she didn't go out to try and change the status quo. So, you know, she she still says things like women still need to obey their husbands. So she was quite conservative. She's often pictured in or represents herself doing things like observing parties and feasts at court as a kind of outsider. So one of her most famous poems is Solette suis et Solette veuille être. So alone I am and alone I wish to be. So quite a kind of withdrawn kind of pose, which of course was brought on by her widowhood because widows in the Middle Ages had this slightly odd, you know, they didn't really have a, a proper position, um, especially in a courtly setting. You know, there was just this sort of awkwardness because your identity as a woman was tied to your husband. So if you didn't have a husband, then um so so she's often pictured being quite withdrawn and quite shy um she certainly took comfort in literature and her imagination or at least that's what she wants us to think i mean uh, this could be um more of a literary stance that that she adopts. So in terms of her character, we don't know a great deal. Um, I'd say that actually what we can say about her is stuff that we know from her manuscript. So having a look at how she works and that sort of thing. I think this brings us on to another thing that you really talk about in your book is that she seems to have had quite an understanding of the world around her. She seems to be quite educated in many things and that she really actively engaged with society. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yes, she she certainly did engage with the world around her and she was interested in a variety of topics, but only up to an extent. Um, one of the criticisms that's levelled against her by um, one particular critic called Sheila Delaney, who wrote a very anti-Christine piece um, a few de- a couple of decades ago now, is that um, she she was writing very much for the upper classes and with an upper class point of view. This is a fair criticism. Um, However, she was writing for royal audiences. So, you know, she she wasn't writing for popular audiences. Popular audiences didn't have access to books. So, in a way, you know, writing for a popular audience, I mean, it, it just, it didn't happen in the Middle Ages because there was kind of no point. Um, That's not to say that literature shouldn't be accessible, of course, and I'm sure Christine would have wanted her works to be accessible to everyone if they could be, but that was how they were. But one thing I would say 
is that even though she wasn't necessarily engaging with or writing from the point of view of um, other echelons of society, she does touch on them. So, for instance, one of her books, uh, which is a kind of behavioural manual for women called The Book of Three Virtues or The Livre des Trois Vertus, uh, she writes at some length on prostitutes and how... Um, well, basically how, how terrible it is that prostitutes exist and sort of uh, here are some other careers that are open to them. And, you know, they've clearly been enterprising up to now so they can put that to good use and they can get a different kind of job, which you can criticise Christine for being a, a little bit um, unworldly, uh, maybe in that respect. But at least she does go there. You know, she, she doesn't just deny that prostitutes exist or that that it's a problem. She, she does at least acknowledge that there are less fortunate women around and that they have their own issues and that maybe women from higher echelons of society could even help them, possibly. So the women who are reading Christine's work might be inclined to feel a bit more sympathetic and offer them jobs rather than perpetuating a problem that's ongoing. From talking a little bit about her audience being more the upper classes of ladies could you maybe tell us a little bit more about her patrons who are they and did she have a good relationship do we know that at all mm. it's an interesting question um so there were different models of patronage in the middle ages so we tend to think of patronage as being somebody has a desire for a book uh, or a work of art or a piece of music and they will go and find an artist or a musician or a writer and they will write that or create that piece of work for them. That certainly happens sometimes in the Middle Ages and indeed it did happen with Christine. So um, the Duke of Burgundy actually approached Christine directly and asked her to write the biography of his brother, King Charles V. That's quite unusual and Christine actually describes that encounter in a lot of detail so talks about how she was minding her own business and she was summoned to the Louvre and uh, and um, the Duke of Burgundy wanted to see her so she went along and he asked her to do this so, you know she makes a big deal of it because clearly this is quite an unusual situation. What happened more commonly in the Middle Ages is that a writer or artist or musician whatever would compose something, offer it to a patron and expect something in return. So that could sometimes be money. It could sometimes be a more general sort of protection. So, you know, maybe, well, hey, you've written this wonderful book for us. We have this lovely room that you and your family can stay in and you can be active members of court, that sort of thing. So we know that that also happened with Christine uh, because she's recorded in some of the... Um, royal archives as having received payments and gifts from various members of the royal households. With whichever model of patronage was happening, Christine's patrons were from the very highest members of Parisian society. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. A small example, but something I, I love um, is in the margin of one of her manuscripts, there's a, a tiny little um, word saying ici next to where one of the pictures is. So just a tiny little note to the illuminator that 
this is where I want you to put that picture. So it really shows the level of detail to which she was controlling um, how her final product would actually look. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Obviously, we've spoken of her as a writer so far, but how much influence did Christine have in the production of her works? It seems quite a lot, actually. And this is one of the things that I personally find absolutely fascinating about her is so we have at least 54 manuscripts survive that Christine is believed to have produced herself. So some of them, um, that's because we've identified her handwriting. So we can tell that she wrote the pages herself. In other cases, and these I almost find more interesting than the the ones that she actually penned herself, are ones where she's had a professional scribe uh, write for her and she's intervened and corrected it. So sometimes the spelling's not right or a word is out of place and you've got Christine's dainty little hand comes along and and makes corrections to the, the original manuscript. So she was very unusual in that she actually wrote her own manuscript. So other writers might have done this in the Middle Ages, but we we don't know for sure because we don't have that sort of intervention by the author to correct manuscripts as they go along. Um, the other thing to say about that is that she tells us about this um, involvement in producing her manuscripts. So she... she says at one point, I think it's in the her most famous work nowadays, the Book of the City of Ladies, so the Livre de la Cité des Dames, and she, I think it's in that text, might actually not be, anyway, um, but she talks about how she's produced, um, at this stage, I think this is in 1405, and she says, I've produced 15 major works and countless smaller ones, and they take up 70 choirs of large format parchment. So a choir is sort of a, a booklet. Um, so, you know, she's got the technical vocab down. So she's clearly very heavily involved in this. The other thing that she tells us about is 
that she is clearly familiar with the artists and artisans who are producing the manuscripts as well. And we know this because she tells us about Anastase, who is um, a woman that we don't otherwise know about, um, but who was doing sort of vignetture, um, which are intricate borders um, with a vine leaf pattern on the side of parchment pages. Um, but the fact that she knows this woman's name suggests that she was very heavily involved um, on that side of things as well. You spoke a little bit about workshops earlier. Could you tell us more about that side of things as well? Yes. Um, unfortunately, we don't know a vast amount about what sort of workshop Christine was running. But what we do know, I mentioned um, her scribes a moment ago. And what we do know is that there were at least three scribes working on Christine's manuscript. So there's Christine's own hands that we've been able to identify. There's what we know to be the hand of a professional scribe. And we know that because this hand has been seen working on other manuscripts. And then there's another hand that doesn't appear anywhere else. So doesn't mean that they didn't work on anything else. It might just be that those manuscripts have been lost, but it could have been a member of her household or someone she was training up, for instance. So we can imagine that there might have been a room where these three people were working side by side. Um, two things we know about her manuscripts from looking well, about the way she worked from looking at her manuscripts. Um, one is that if she was producing several copies of the same work for different patrons, so, you know, she, she might have been writing a book uh, that she wanted to distribute to more than one person, she copied them at the same time. So she'd write one choir for one patron and then use that, well, take that choir, copy it for the next one and then for the next one. So she'd have sort of multiple copies of the same thing being written out by hand at the same time. So it's a, a very efficient way of working. And the other thing we know from looking at the, the individual choirs that are now bound together in manuscripts is that some of these choirs look like they stayed exposed for some time in her workshop, whatever shape that might have taken on. And we know that because there's a little bit of sun damage or exposure damage where the outside pages have been exposed to the elements. So we can kind of imagine this workshop with choirs of papers sort of sitting around waiting to be bound together. Do we know if she had any relationships with those people that she was working with in production of her work? Not for certain, no. But I mean, I, I think it goes without say that she she must have been fairly close or grown quite close to the people with whom she collaborated over an extensive period. So, for instance, I've mentioned the uh, professional scribe who wrote quite a lot of her manuscripts. She must have gotten to know that person quite well. Um, one of the questions I get quite often, because um, I've worked quite extensively on the work that an artist known as the Master of the City of Ladies, who I think I've already mentioned actually, um, did on quite a lot of Christine's manuscripts. And this was an artist who was, he's regarded, I say he, we don't know that it necessarily was a he, but just for simplicity, this was one of the most well-known artists of the period. He worked on a lot of very beautiful manuscripts that were held in royal libraries. And 
He started illuminating Christine's manuscripts quite late on in her career. I think 1407 was the first time he did so. And he went on to become the artist with whom Christine almost solely collaborated for the rest of her career. So it goes goes to show that she she really seemed to like this particular artist. Um, This artist also created a brand new set of illustrations for the Book of the City of Ladies. Now, this is significant because a lot of art in the Middle Ages was quite repetitive. So, you know, if you think of representations of, I don't know, the Virgin Mary or, you know, traditional author poses, they all look pretty much the same. Um, Or, you know, mythological stories. There wasn't much innovation. So to have hired an artist and got them to create a brand new set of miniatures, that's quite significant. The other thing, another of her works called the Epistle of Othea, so the the Epitre Othea, has 101 illuminations to it. She got a very, a, a totally unknown artist to create the first set of miniatures for the first version of that text. But a few years later, she got the Master of the City of Ladies to reproduce better quality versions of those images. So it seems, you know, it would have made more economical sense to get the original artist to do it rather than somebody more expensive and better known to basically replicate the same work. So, it suggests that she had quite a good working relationship with this person. One of the questions I'm often asked actually is, could it have been Christine herself? Um, Very sadly, the answer is no, because, well, first of all, um, this artist was active uh, before Christine was. And second, Christine is very proud of her writing. You know, she talks a lot about her activity as a writer. She has herself represented as a writer. So if she was also an illuminator who works on royal manuscripts, I'm assuming she would have she would have made a big deal of this as well. She seems incredibly involved. You may have hinted at this earlier, but how unusual was Christine in medieval society for for a female writer for this level of involvement? Well, on both counts, she was pretty unusual. And that's what I really like about her, because people people often say to me, oh, you know, a female writer in the Middle Ages wasn't that very unusual. And to say, well, yes, that in itself was unusual. But for somebody to be so heavily involved in producing such a massive volume of work, that was very strange. I mean, uh, to think, think of a couple of comparisons. I mean, Beowulf survives in just one copy. And um, Chaucer, who was writing, he was roughly contemporaneous with Christine. Um, We've only got 56 copies of um, the Canterbury Tales. So, you know, that's roughly the same number of autograph manuscripts we have of of Christine's works. So um, we don't have any copies of Chaucer's that we know he wrote either. So, no, this was all very, very unusual. From her own time, how has Christine really been seen since? How has perhaps our understanding of her changed? Mm, Good question. Once the Middle Ages were over, anything medieval very quickly fell out of fashion. It's then that terms like the Dark Ages were coined and, you know, people in the Renaissance were very proud of all of the new discoveries they were making. So anything medieval fell very much out of fashion. She was read by contemporary... 
up to about the middle of the 16th century and a few of her works were even printed um very early printed editions but after that she she pretty much became obscure until the turn of the 18th century she began to be rediscovered um but she was rediscovered properly in the early 20th century where her feminist well what are seen as her feminist writings um, were kind of rediscovered by early feminist writers. So people like Simone de Beauvoir uh, mentions Christine uh, defending women in her book of 1949, The Second Sex, um, uh, although she wasn't actually the first person to write about uh, Christine's defences of women. I think there was another book in the very late 19th century on that topic as well. We've spoken a little bit there about her being an early feminist but could you tell us in a little bit more detail why have people called Christine a feminist in the past? But defences of women were kind of a part of all of her works uh, to a lesser or greater extent whether that's through I mean one end of the scale you've got her subtle subtly pointing out that the Queen of France would make a fantastic regent and that actually other queens have been regents in the past. Hint, hint. So, you know, maybe maybe women aren't so bad after all. And then there's the much more explicit works. So um, the Cité des Dames, the City of Ladies, is is one of those. Uh, there's also the, the Dit de la Rose, so the Tale of the Rose, which ends with um, asking men to stand up and recite a ballad which is an oath that they take that they will protect women and not say bad things against them and that if they have a woman whom they call their lady they will be faithful to her so that's quite a rousing uh piece and another Another of her most feminist pieces is um, a collection of letters that she wrote to and received from some leading scholars of the time uh, called the Epistles on the Romance of the Rose, so the Epitre sur le roman de la Rose, in which she criticises a text called The Romance of the Rose, which was written in the previous century, which was seen as being very misogynistic, not least of all because of the ending of the text, which is basically, uh, yeah, basically tantamount to a rape scene. Um, But it was a very popular text and she criticises it very heavily. So although I always caution against calling her a feminist because she wasn't arguing for the equality of women. That term didn't exist until the 19th century, but she certainly did some things and argued for things in her writings that nowadays we would seen as being aligned with the women's cause, if you like, if not the goals of feminism more strongly. What interpretations have we seen of Christine since? How has she been presented to us? In the last half a century or so, Christine's writings have certainly gained a lot in popularity, um, especially because of their kind of pro-feminine nature. But interestingly, in the last 20 or 30 years or so, she's started to influence artists quite a lot. So Judy Chicago, who's great a feminist art installation, The Dinner Party, was on display in the 1980s, was the first to sort of grab Christine and incorporate her in an 
artistic installation. And she's gone on to influence a couple of other artists. So most recently, Tai Shani, who was one of the joint winners of the Turner Prize in, I think, 2018. Um, her installation was directly inspired by uh, Christine's book, The City of Ladies, so the Livre de la Cité des Dames. So the Cité des Dames is nowadays is Christine's most popular text. And the reason for that is because it's perhaps the most overtly feminist of texts. And I'm, I'm saying feminists in big, fat, scare quotes, because I'm not sure that we would necessarily agree that, that it is. Um, but this, it, it kind of encapsulates a lot of the themes of Christine's writing. So it starts in a very autobiographical sort of way with Christine in her study and she's feeling a bit low. So she gets out this book that she's heard is very good. And she finds that it's filled with terrible things about women and she starts to cry and says, well, she comes to realise, well, no book actually says anything good about women. And she, she describes it as a, a torrent that she she feels of, of names of male writers from history who've all said bad things about women. And she's sitting there crying in her study and she just laments, why was I not born a man? When three virtuous ladies appear to her, and they go on through a kind of question and answer uh, session to explain to her why men have said all these terrible things about women and to comfort her and to tell her that they're wrong and that she knows that they're wrong because she herself is a woman and she has experienced the fact that women aren't bad by nature. Um, and then the rest of the book, to, to be honest, isn't the most gripping <laughs> because it's a kind of encyclopedia of good women from history and biblical sources. So that can sometimes be a bit of a disappointing read. Um, but nowadays, modern audiences really like this book because of this, this opening. So this kind of questioning of, of misogyny, essentially, and modern artists have really picked up on this. Are there any particular examples or interpretations that have especially stood out to you, whether for good reason or for bad reason? Mm. Well, I'll give the bad reason because that's a bit easier. But I've throughout this interview, I've been dancing around the fact that Christine as a feminist writer um, isn't necessarily so straightforward. And it kind of pains me to criticise this this. Um, Insta well, mural. It's a artistic mural that's been painted on this seven-story building in Turin. It's really beautiful and it's very striking, but I do have a, a problem with it. So this mural, it represents Christine and there's the city behind her. So the City of Ladies, her most famous book. And she's holding a pen in one hand and a book in the other. And the pen, there's a trail of ink goes over her head. And it's got, and in the book, you've got the um, gender equality symbol. So it's as if Christine, through the City of Ladies, has written gender equality. And my big problem with this is that the concept of gender equality did not exist in the Middle Ages. You know, not only is this not something that Christine argued for, it's something that she wouldn't have recognised. And the fact that she says in the Book of Three Virtues that women should obey their husbands and, you know, 
tough. You just have to put up with what you're given. And I'm sorry if sometimes that's hard. That is very much not gender equality. That's not what she's what she's writing about. So I adore this mu- mural. I love to see, I mean, who doesn't want to see a seven story high picture of Christine? But it's just not that accurate. Um, a favourite actually is um, some little known um, but absolutely magnificent, uh, what's the word? Collages. Some magnificent collages by an artist, an American artist called Marsha Pippinger, who imagined the encounter between Judy Chicago and Christine de Pizan. And I love these because, first of all, they're inspired by um, the medieval illuminations. So they use the same style as the, well, the artist that we only know as the master of the city of ladies. Um, and one of the features of his artwork was that he his backgrounds tended to be made up of lots of little squares, so alternating blue and red squares with kind of gold gilding in between. And she replicates this in these very modern collages. And I just love the way that she's kind of fused modernity with the medieval in quite a successful sort of way without being anachronistic or losing the message of Christine's work. Yeah, I find that really inspiring. Bearing that in mind, this is my final question for you, which is how do you think we should see her today? Today, I mean, I would like to step away slightly from the feminism label, which is a shame in a way because that's the way that we often get people interested in Christine. If you say, hey, there was a woman writing defences of women and against misogyny in the 15th century, people are sort of, oh, that sounds interesting, tell me more. And it's definitely the way I've gotten a lot of students interested in Christine in the past. But actually, for me, what's more significant about Christine is her work as an entrepreneur. Um, the novelty that she brought to the table in terms of being a medieval writer who was so in control of the products that she made, you know, from editing the text very carefully to preparing the manuscript so beautifully and engaging famous artists and, you know, making sure that everything was designed to be just so. One very small example, but something I I love, um, is in the margin of one of her manuscripts, there's a, a tiny little um, word saying "ici" next to where one of the pictures is. So just a tiny little note to the illuminator that this is where I want you to put that picture. So it really shows the level of detail to which she was controlling um, how her final product would actually look. So I'd almost like to step away from, let's stop thinking about Christine as being significant as a, as a woman writer. Let's think about Christine as being significant as a kind of a pioneering writer in her own right. That was Charlotte Cooper Davis. Her book, Christine de Pisan, Life, Work, Legacy, is out now published by Reaction Books. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. <laughs>